0: and we'll we'll go ahead and get started. so first first thing on the schedule here. so i I called a, a bit of an audible um, this week because I had a really tough time fitting this talk tonight into one session <laughs> and try as I might I, I had to pack it in there. I didn't want to keep you guys uh, way over, so I decided to. Uh, switch the schedule a little bit. So we're going to do tonight's talk in, a, in two parts. So you'll get what is a woman part one tonight. And then uh, Lord willing, you'll get uh, what is a woman part two next week. So what we're going to do is because I know there were some of the younger, uh, younger, young men uh, that wanted to sit on, an, on the boy to man talk. So we're going to keep that in the same slot. So essentially we're just going to drop the last one. He wore your crown and, uh, and, rep- and move the, the dragon-slaying one down to the last, last spot. Uh, I know you guys are really concerned about that, but uh, that, that's how that's going to work. So, um, and then you guys have been so gracious. If you, uh, if you decide to have me back, you know, maybe we can fit that last talk in another time. So uh, I think that would be good. Well, let's go ahead and uh, go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time. Father in heaven, we come before you and we give you praise. You are holy and majestic and mighty and powerful and all-knowing and all-wise and your wisdom just permeates through everything in the creation, particularly uh, when it comes to uh, who we are and how you made us, how you made man in your image. What a glorious concept that you had from the beginning and You put your very own image inside of us and you illuminated us and you caused us to move and walk and reflect who you are. And and that is such an amazing truth. And uh, we could never um, just understand the depths of what that means and the depths of who you are. So Lord, we can only respond in obedience to what you've called us to. And so we pray that you would help us to do that, equip our minds tonight Teach us what it what it means to be a woman today, and uh, and how you have endowed women uh, with so much glory. And we just pray that you would give us some insights into that tonight, so that we might reflect who you are rightly. And um, we give you all the praise and glory and honor in Christ's name. We pray. Amen. So. Tonight's talk is kind of four. I have four points, uh, but you're going to get the two second points next week. So the first two points that I have are a woman's identity, her identity, and then the second point we're going to talk about is the theft of her identity. Uh, and then, Lord, Lord willing, next week when we pick up, we're going to we're going to talk about the church's response, and then fourthly the restoration of her identity, how Christ restores a woman's identity. So those are the four central points, and I wanna give uh, thanks up front to um, Eowyn Eowyn Stoddard, and uh, she's with Truth Exchange Ministry. Uh, They've been a very influential ministry uh, for me over the years. They're based out of Escondido, California, which is not too far from where I grew up. And there was a talk that she gave uh, about this similar subject, and um, it inspired me to write, a th- actually, I wrote a 30-page essay. It, it just kind of grew and grew and grew, and I did that about a year ago, and I wrote this essay, and I entitled it, What is a Woman? And one of the, one of the reasons I was motivated to do that was because uh, I, I just found that, that the church's response, by and large, not all, but by and large, was inadequate in addressing this very important subject. And so that kind of inspired me. If you guys are interested in the essay, I'm happy to pass it on, and I can send it to you. Just let me know, and I'm I'm happy to do that. So our nation, as we've been talking about, is is staggered from the lies that are just coming at us full swing. Uh, there's, There's this failure to believe the truth, this obstinance, this rebellion against the truth, and uh, we see this really manifested quite centrally in, in feminist ideology, in this progressive feminist ideology. And it's been absorbed. This ideology has been absorbed into the pagan culture. So it's been absorbed into this pagan cosmology that we've been talking about. And it, re- it reveals itself in the loss of biblical femininity, and it reveals itself in the crushing of women and women are are exposed um, at at a rate that i cannot uh, even begin to imagine Uh, the the exposure of women today and the suppression the true suppression of women and the malignment and the perversion of women is at a a pace that's never been seen in this country Um, it's it's an attack on women it's from the devil and we need to expose it. So the, the point of tonight is to really uh, disciple one another and get this topic out there so that we can talk about it, we can have a proper response, not just to the culture but also to ourselves and how we think about these things, how we respond in our family, and our marriages. So this is cosmology now moving to the more micro scale. You see, we started off with the big broad brush, right? We looked at you know the whole the whole uh, cosmos and that pagan ideology that's been coming at us, and now we're going to move and narrow that in to really in places where it maybe meets meets the road a little bit more for us, right? At our homes, and our families, and our churches, and our schools. So our families are suffering the consequences. Our churches are suffering the consequences, and and the structure of society as a whole is suffering the consequences. So the culture at large has been so fully led astray that a woman cannot or will not even be defined in the public square. How absurd. Case in point, in an article in Politico magazine published in March, 2022, it reads this. As the confirmation hearing for Supreme Court Justice Catania Uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Katanya Brown Jackson went into hour 13. Senator Marsha Blackburn asked the Supreme Court nominee on Tuesday to define the word woman. Most of you probably remember this. I can't, Jackson replied. You can't, Blackburn said, not in this context I'm not a biologist, Jackson said. The meaning of the word woman is so unclear and controversial that you can't give a definition, Blackburn asked. The Tennessee Republicans' line of questioning hit on nearly every political hot-button issue, from critical race theory to teaching children about gender identity in schools to a transgender swimmer on the University of Pennsylvania's women's team. Jackson said her role as a judge would be to address disputes about a definition and to interpret the law, which is kind of funny. How, how can you dispute arguments, you know, how can you settle arguments about a definition when you don't know what the definition is? That seems a little strange. The fact that you can't give me a straight answer about something as fundamental as what a woman is underscores the dangers of the kind of progressive education that we're hearing about, Blackburn said. Blackburn asked what message allowing Thomas to compete sends to girls who aspire to compete and win in sports. Katanji Brown, Jackson speaking in front of her husband and her daughter, Layla, said this, Senator, I'm not sure what message that sends. I don't know. Well, I think it tells our girls that their voices don't matter, Blackburn responded. I think it tells them that they are second-class citizens. Unquote. And indeed it says much more than that, doesn't it? We as the church are the ones that define For the world, not just what a woman is, but to defend women, to fight for women, to protect women. That is what our role is as the church. So what is a woman? Well, well well-meaning pastors and conservative cultural influencers have attempted to shed light on this question and have helped diagnose the absurdity of so-called gender fluidity but often attempts to explain what a woman is according to God have come up dismally short. Biology and precept have been the two go-to places to define the female sex. However, the nature of women biblical cosmology is scarcely addressed. It's scarcely talked about. So God defines women in the scripture God says why and to what ends he creates. Therefore, what a woman is, is rooted in the divine design and nature that God has given her. And come to find when you read the Bible, God has a lot to say about women. He has a lot to say about the identity of a woman. The natural world continuously informs us that there is a master engineer involved in the creation Everything God creates is designed to glorify him. Therefore, God, the infinitely intelligent designer, has given a specific purpose and goal for how he will be glorified in every creative act, including women. So as we've been uh, chronicling in this cosmology, in these cosmology sessions, the consequences of ignoring God's telos for his creation is beyond Calculation. The natural awareness that's present in even the smallest child has been, is turned upside down. And as far as the church is concerned, the ultimate goal isn't to preserve women's sports. The ultimate goal is not even to preserve women's rights. But the gospel is front and center in this discussion. Souls are at stake, and the truth of God's word is what liberates men and women from the shackles of sin. So historically, i just consider for a moment, historically nations have been torn apart. Entire civilizations have been literally burned to the ground, rendered extinct, and sentenced to eternal fire for rebelling against God's plan for male and female. Jude 1, seven. just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them having indulged in the same way as these, as these, these false teachers in gross sexual immorality and having gone after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the eternal punishment of hellfire, Jude 1.7. Defining what a woman is takes us back yet again to the beginning, and that's where we've been launching off, if you've noticed, from each of these sessions. Before creation, the idea of man and woman was conceptualized in the mind of God, and all the seeds of redemptive history are sown here in the beginning. Genesis one twenty seven states, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So this means that mankind's identity and the glory of God are inseparably woven together. What incredible privilege as no other created being is said to be made for the purpose of radiating the glory of its maker. So the glory of God in mankind has no less than three qualities. Three qualities. First, the physical. Second, the functional. And third, the ethical. And we'll deal briefly with each of these three. So it is important to ask When we ask the question, what is a woman? To emphasize the interdependence that men and women have in order to fulfill each of these three qualities. In other words, you can't define either sex without the correspondence of the other. Think when Adam named the animals, right? There's a giraffe. Oh, oh, there's a female giraffe, (laughs) right? There's a bear, and there's a female bear. Oh, oh, look how cute. That's a monkey. Oh, and there's a female monkey. Right? But Adam had no corresponding mate for him. Right? You can't even define Adam without Eve. You can't define Eve without Adam. So the flourishing of humanity cannot be attained without the reliance of one binary upon the other. So when you consider the physical, it says, Paul says this, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 11 through 12. So although God is spirit, our male and female bodies, they display something of the attributes of God. Our bodies are fitted by God in such a way as to fulfill the glorious task that God has assigned to us, to spread, to rule, and to fill. Another word for fill is to glorify. So fruitfulness, multiplication, and exercising dominion is humanity's assignment as God's priestly and ruling representatives. And you can read about that in various texts. Psalm 8 would be one. So our bodies are wonderfully made and brilliantly designed to multiply, to be fruitful, which can only be done when men and women fit together. So the task of reproduction assumes both bodily equality and oppositeness, doesn't it? In other words, created gender differences are defined both in relation to and in contrast with one another. So created on the final day of creation, the formation of man and women constitute the climax of a series of these physical binaries. And we looked at this earlier, right? God created through ordered separation, not through chaos, right? God created the heavens and the earth. God separated the light from the darkness, God separated the atmospheric waters from the terrestrial waters, the sea and dry land, and day from night. And this continues. So this separation continues each of the six days, and the point we want to see here is that each separation is dependent one upon the other. As there are no heavens without earth and no dry land without the sea, there are no offspring without the binary of male and female. I mean, that just seems to elude people today. So male and female are not fluid constructs determined by the one who reflects the image, but they are determined by the one from whom that image radiates. So what makes a woman unique? Well, her unique traits are they they result in a special function. Adam was formed, it says, from the dust of the earth, as were the animals. Eve, however, this is a different Hebrew word, says, was built. So Adam was formed. Eve was built by God uniquely from the man's body. The only living creature said to be created from the body of her mate. This speaks to deep union, but also to this interdependence. So we see that Eve's body is special; it's unique. Her body is not rugged and and muscular, but is soft. It is curvy. It is feminine. It is akin to a place of rest, a home, or a temple. And her womb is like a sanctuary. The fact that her being was created from atoms no way diminishes her essential. equality with him, right, and she was taken out of the side of Adam, not out of his head to rule over him, not under his feet to be trampled by him, but taken from the side. Though the manner of the creation of her body is derived from Adam, it reveals her physical and familial connectedness to Adam, who was the first representative of humanity, So the woman is made from man in relationship to man and for the man, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.9. Adam and Eve's bodily existence and non-physical experience is not parallel to Adam's, but it is deeply interwoven. Adam recognized these special distinctions of Eve when he saw her for the first time, and I think we mentioned this last week. In the original language, it's, it's, it's this emphatic rejoicing This is now, Lord, now, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam's saying, I I found my mate, is what he's saying. I found the one that corresponds to me. I found the love of my life. Adam recognized instantly that the two together constitute an essential unity. There is a completeness. They were made to go together. That's obvious. The woman's body speaks to this unity and has the privilege of representing the glorious image of God through the man. So Eve represents God's image uniquely. The manner of Eve's creation reveals her physical and non-physical distinctions, right? We wanna be told today that sex and gender are two different things, that gender is fluid, right? That sex may be fixed biologically, but gender is fluid. That's a lie. So in what ways does Eve reveal her physical and non-physical distinctions? And I'm gonna go through this quickly in in a list here. A, her body is made differently. Her body is made differently. Eve bears God's image directly while simultaneously deriving it from Adam's flesh and blood. In other words, as Adam, the son of the earth, is formed from the dust of the ground, Eve's equality is derived from his body. B, the place of her creation is different. Adam was made out of the earth, outside of the garden. Eve was made inside the garden. Consider for a moment that a woman's association with the garden is made repeatedly in the scripture. In John 20, for example, the woman, Mary Magdalene, was in the garden where she met who? The true gardener, the resurrected last Adam. In the Song of Songs, the woman's body is described as a beautiful garden sanctuary. The church, the bride of Christ, is described as a body with allusions to the eschatological temple, adorned with Edenic imagery, such as pomegranates and palm trees. C. the purpose of her creation is slightly different. Adam was created out of the earth's need. He was to till, he was to subdue the earth, but the woman was created out of the man's need so that he would not be alone. D, her identity corresponds to her name. Adam named his wife. He named his wife and he gave her a name that corresponds to her unique purpose as what? Life giver. She's a life giver. This designation, by the way, is given to her by Adam before she even bears a child. She was to be the mother of all the living and therefore help Adam fulfill the command to be fruitful and multiply. Eve? Eve is an image bearer squared, not, not physically, ladies, but because she has the unique ability to be inhabited by another human being. And thus, her contribution to filling the earth includes incubating in her own body the glorious images of God, who would then turn and fill the earth. Number two, function. Woman was created by God for the man to be a helpmate, a suitable, help, a suitable helper for the man. Eve's body is both like Adam's and yet is distinct, it's different. Yet their bodies are not merely compatible like a universal remote and a television, but instead they work together as a lock and key. They are designed to complement one another. So both by themselves, their differences in design have little meaning, yet when they are married together, they unlock the splendor of intimacy, communion, and new life. They are opposites, yet they fit perfectly together. The woman then brings the fullness of what was previously lacking. You see? It is precisely in this way that a woman is man's glory 1st Corinthians 11:7 So being the climax of creation Eve completed Adam and then God did what? He rested. God saved the best for last as Eve and the women said amen. As Eve was the final act before his rest. In other words, the Sabbath could not have taken place without Eve completing the creation. So the creation account can be divided into two main stages. We, we briefly touched on this before, but it's important to our discussion here, so I'll, I'll, I'll bring it up again. The first is the forming stage. So the first three days, you have what? You have naming, taming, dividing, ruling, right? And then the second stage, the last three days of the creation, you have the filling stage, which is the glorifying stage, the, the generating stage, Uh, establishing communion and bringing forth new life. So you think of a house. You demo the old structure. You clear and establish your foundation, and then you build, and then you what? Fill the space. You fill the space. You glorify the space. So the woman is placed at the apex of the filling stage. She is primarily called to fill and to glorify the structures that man has tamed and established and the world that he has subdued. Man builds the house, the woman beautifies it, and fills it with life. In a new marriage, uh, uh, as a man, you you quickly realize that a woman by nature is going to come in and she's going to give that home a little bit of a makeover. We've we've seen that in our own family. What they call that? Nesting. Something like that. He's going out into the wild to provide, to bring home the bacon, and she is going to beautify that space and prepare that space for what? For a family. As he forms, as he names, as he tames, as he rules and governs and establishes the foundations and proclaims the knowledge of God while zealously guarding moral boundaries, she follows him by bringing life, intimacy, communion, nourishment, beautification, emotional vitality, joy, and completion. So the woman completes the man so that neither the man or the woman accomplishes their task alone. They do it together. They must rely upon, cooperate with, and assist one another. And so we might pause here to make an important note that their loving one flesh relationship is ordered toward mission. It was ordered toward mission, to the mission that God gave them. And this comes instinctively because their task is to expand God's glory and fruitfulness into the world through work and through offspring. It's no wonder that Satan hates the family. no wonder. So it is God's purpose for humanity that men and women, they work together. They raise children together and that God would graciously provide the means for them to do this through fertilization of both the soil and the womb. The soil and the womb. Deuteronomy 7.13 says in Moses' farewell speech, he says, quote, he will love you bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. So in contrast to forced servitude, she does what? She willingly places herself into submission by offering up her own body in submission to the task. Sounds like our Lord, doesn't it? <clears throat> we see then that the essence of the woman was perfectly crafted by God to reflect the essence of his character. God is a God on mission, isn't he? As the son willfully and joyfully submits to the father in his mission, the woman in like manner, as an act of reverence and worship to God, submits to her head in the covenant of marriage, giving a beautiful mirror of the mission that, God, that is God's redemptive story. And we talked about that last week. So how does she reflect God and demonstrate his character? How? Well, women are called to reflect the glory of God's essence by reproducing the feminine virtues which God demonstrates towards his children. You can read about some of these in 1 Peter 3, Titus 2, 1 Timothy 2.9. So God comes alongside us as a helper, so that we might become fruitful for him. The Holy Spirit is described as what? The paraclete, right, the helper. God is a life-giving God who feeds and nurtures us. God communes with us and shows us his faithfulness by employing this womb and this rock imagery that goes throughout the scripture. Consider that God indicts Israel for failing to embrace these obvious characteristics of him. He says uh, in Deuteronomy 32, 18, you neglected the rock who begot you and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The psalmist in the 105th Psalter says this in reflection of God's love towards Israel. He says, quote, he opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. It's a beautiful picture. So Christ is called a rock, the living stone. God is depicted throughout scripture as the rock of salvation, while also demonstrating nourishing, life-giving strength and safety. God gives his comforting and stable womb and rock advocacy through the Holy Spirit. So a woman is never more like God when she is reflecting these feminine attributes. I mean, any, any little boy that skinned his knee has experienced that from his mom. So as we're seeing, the question of what is a woman goes far beyond biology, doesn't it? As her image bearing is not limited to the mere physical expression of her femaleness. So that moves us to the next point is the the theft of the woman's identity, the theft of the woman's identity. So we have three bandits that have ran off with the woman's identity. These three thieves are present all the way back in the fall and they have been and will continue to push a false identity for women until Christ returns. They seek to destroy women through lies And we must remember that the battle is always for the mind, right? Romans 12, 2, it's always for the mind. These three bandits are, number one, the devil, number two, the flesh, and number three, the world. And there, of course, is overlap here, right? This is a collective effort. Every unbeliever has the devil for a spiritual father, John 8, 44. (laughs) The world is under the power of the evil one, 1 John five nineteen. The flesh has an affinity for worldly appetites, doesn't it? So first, the devil. He's the oldest and most conniving of the thieves. He is described as an angel of light, the twisted serpent, the father of lies. We've talked about these things. The deceiver of the whole world. He's full of malice. He's full of accusations, schemes, destruction, and he is a murderer. His agenda is to destroy the seed of the woman. And if you're a woman here tonight, he is your direct nemesis. He hates God, he hates the image of God, he hates the glory of God and the life that God gives. And though he is not omniscient, he has been around at least since Adam. So he's had thousands of years to devote to his tireless schemes against the woman and her seed. So we are to be acutely aware of his nature and his schemes and by nature he is an identity thief. What do I mean by that? Well, well he bought his own delusion, didn't he? He bought his own delusion by thinking that equality with God was something to be grasped. He abandoned his own creaturely identity to pursue a divine identity that was not his to pursue. Now, I believe that prior to the fall, Satan was beautiful. And in his deception, he offered to Eve a living example that one could attain transcendence into this new identity through rebellion. That's the lie. Perhaps she reasoned, yes. Just how did this angel of light get into the garden where God walks? Was he perhaps a living example of how through rebellion, one could create their own identity. He approached Eve with a lie that maligned the goodness of God by pretending to be more trustworthy than God himself. He attacked Eve's finite reason by presenting her with this plausible exchange, right? God's truth for a lie. As the serpent spoke three powerful little words, hath God said? The seeds of distrust lodged in Eve's soul and you can almost hear these words being played out in her mind. Dear, honored, and glorious queen of the garden, your majesty, consider your potential, madame. That big, meanie god, well, he's using his power to keep you down, to elevate himself and use you for his selfish needs. This same distrust is depicted in Israel's continuous irrational claims that Yahweh had brought them out from Egypt to kill them in the wilderness, right? Like Israel, Eve should have known better, right? She saw God's goodness, care, and love. Each aspect of the lie has a corresponding effect that can be traced throughout human history up to the modern woman today. Therefore, since God does not have the queen's best interest in mind, she has the right to self-preservation. The devil's lie implied that the woman could become the queen of her own existence and that her true self, the true her, could only be freed through rebellion. She was not content with the identity that God had given her. And she could be like God by shedding God's oppressive patriarchal shackles. Feminism's insatiable quest for independence and personal autonomy is lubricated by this very lie today. In Eve's deception, it became manifest that the bond of intimacy she had with her God and with her husband was not enough for her. She wanted more. This is the lie in seed form that the devil had planted and thus Eve was deceived. She was deceived by the allure of power She was deceived by the allure of independence from God. And by the way, her husband was no innocent bystander. He made the decision to stand by and watch the intellectual and emotional manipulation of his wife take place in front of his eyes. Therefore, failing in his task to ward off evil by crushing the serpent's head, Adam was fully culpable, fully responsible and by the way he was capable for restraining the expiration of his wife's intuition but he failed he did not he didn't protect her why did adam abdicate his role of leader and protector well some of this is conjecture we understand because we don't have the full answer to that but we do have some clues was Adam driven into passivity by fear that he might lose his precious queen? Well, we do know that Adam was not deceived, First Timothy 2:14. So the indication is that Adam must have known that God would punish Eve by death. That's what he told Adam would happen, therefore leaving him in a state that he was in before God had created her. What state was that? Alone. Adam put his own self-interest before God and husbands have been doing the same thing ever since. Satan's attack on the weaker vessel tested both Adam and his wife and both failed the test. So Eve had received a very splendid identity from God. She was a unique image bearer of God with the capacity to bring forth more image bearers. And after the fall, she loses key aspects of her identity and would consequently bring forth sons born in iniquity as demonstrated by her firstborn, Cain, who slew his own brother. A double or mutual enmity between the woman and the serpent then would ensue, Genesis 3.15. The enmity placed by God between Eve and the serpent is a consequence of sin, yet yet it is also a form of protection. It's a form of protection from keeping any long-term alliance between the two of them. So until the king returns, the serpent's seed and the woman's seed will always be at war. Always be at war. Because Eve's creational identity stands in radical opposition to Satan's identity. Right? She is the mother of all life. He is a murderer from the beginning. She's a helper. She's a supporter. She's a nurturer. The evil one is nemesis, accuser, adversary, destroyer, fault finder. So this enmity is thematic throughout the Bible's redemption storyline. Her ability to bring life into the world is a threat to Satan's agenda. He knows that her life-giving ability will eventually bring the seed that's going to bring about his own destruction. The offspring of the serpent chasing the seed of the woman runs all the way out through the redemptive story. It fills the grand telos of history. And if Satan cannot kill the seed, then he will attempt to steal her seed The reprobate for his own purposes he's a thief he's an identity thief that's what he does second is the flesh and this is mankind's fallen human nature this is the unredeemed part of our being the flesh was and is confirmed in a state of hostility towards God after the fall it rages against God it hates the fact that it's dependent upon him Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. There is an innate rebellion that exists in the flesh to reject the identity that God has assigned. The Apostle John summarizes the flesh's character with a threefold description. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the sensual, right, or the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. The flesh corrupts the image of God and the quest for female autonomy is but one permutation of this rejection. Feminism argues that Eve's act of disobedience against God was not wrong, but instead was an act of a heroine. Liberation through rebellion is sold to women daily with a relentless bombardment of advertisements, media, coffee shop chatter. Feminism has cohabitated with queer theology, worming its way through the culture and it applauds Eve for having found her voice, right? Liberating herself from the heavenly patriarch. But this is not how God describes Eve's first sin. When sinful desire grows full term in us, it leads to death. James 1.14-15. When Eve's eyes were opened, she immediately realized that her quest for a self-made identity did not accomplish the freedom that she expected, but instead it brought what? Guilt, shame, judgment, fear, and death. In a moment of twisted irony, her experiment to thwart the creator creature distinction led her into bondage. She would know God, I'm sorry, she would know good from evil, but she would know it to her shock by becoming it. She was not a morally neutral observer conducting inquiry. She would know evil by becoming evil. Yielding to the insubordination counseled by the flesh robs women of their true identity. And in the process, God's proper order becomes inverted The serpent led the woman who then led her husband. The judgment that follows is judgment through inversion. God's judgment brought conflict in the relationship between men and women, and it brought conflict between Satan and the seed, and it brought conflict between earth and the man. Attempts to invert God's order lead to conflict. It leads to chaos, and it leads to suffering. So in pain, she would bring forth children, Genesis 3.16, For the woman, what once was her strength as life-giver now makes her vulnerable. Fallen humanity attacks the woman by minimizing and victimizing her through sinful men and fallen structures that were originally designed to protect her. After the fall, women began suffering immediate exposure. And here's just a few examples of that exposure. Polygamy, adultery, rape, divorce, Pornography is a 100 billion dollar financial empire. Pornography is the rank subjectification of subjectification of women as objects for self-serving, sensual pleasure. In addition, prostitution is both self-preservation from this crushing, but it's also exposure as well as forced servitude. So when meek, when weak. Men reject their own identity. Instead of crushing the serpent's head, they give their wives up to be crushed. For selfish, self-serving interests, think of Abraham lying about his wife's identity to save his own neck, and then standing by while she was added to an Egyptian harem. The crushing of women is seen wherever women are regarded as second-class humans or sexual commodities, and we have a judge that can't even define what a woman is. How scary is that? All over the world today, these sinful structures manifest themselves in a myriad of ways, such as sex-selective abortion, infanticide, and female babies, involuntary sterilization, female genital mutilations, such as breast augmentation, rape, domestic abuse, violence against women, pornography we mentioned, sex trafficking of women and little girls, Third, the world. The world. The world is that satanically energized system, right, of covetousness, lust, perversion, wickedness, coercion, envy, malice, manipulation, greed, idolatry. The world seeks to free the woman right out of her womanhood. And they do that by claiming that she'll have much greater spiritual, civil, and familial success by becoming like a man. This way of thinking became more popular in the West in the 1960s where in a, being a woman in the traditional sense began to be regarded as a burden. The sexual revolution radically transformed how women were viewed. Confusion set in. Women were told to give up their traditional identity for a more unconventional identity. Women were encouraged to embrace their sexuality detached from their creational identity. This gave permission to women to unhitch their creational ethic and encourage sinful promiscuity and sensual manipulation. Modest, quiet, and soft femininity was replaced by powerful, loud, aggressive expressions, sexual expressions. And women continue today to be manipulated into weaponizing their sexuality to gain independence from oppressive societal structures. Feminism and liberation theology informs the culture that a woman's biology shackles her and that marriage, children, and God's loving plan for her sexuality imprison her. Our modern culture asserts that a man's biology gives him preferential treatment and encourages women to abandon their biology and adopt a masculine identity. The message was the woman's body is no longer a beautifully adorned home that God lovingly built, but is instead a horrible jail cell from which she must escape. This new identity for women targeted specifically the differences between men and women and proposed that women should be as sexually free and promiscuous as men without consequences. The sexual revolution was a destructive campaign against women energized by the serpent's seductive promise of liberation. By the way, this is what abortion is all about. For the abortion activists, it has nothing to do with killing babies. You can go and tell an abortion advocate today that it's murder, and you might as well be speaking Egyptian hieroglyphics to them. They they don't care. They don't understand. It's irrelevant to them. The issue is about sexual freedom that comes from the biological imbalance between the sexes. That's the argument. By toting abortion as women's rights, it both removes men from the discussion and creates an imagined equality between the sexes. You see, that is the issue. That's the issue of abortion right there. That's what's driving this. It is rooted in the same wicked ideology as social justice, in the same wicked ideology as affirmative action, and all these corrupted, unjust social reform programs that the progressive left is setting forth. It's the same thing. Women are told in order to find fulfillment, they need to shake free their identity and be more like men. Thus, liberty involves ridding oneself of fertility, ridding oneself of that interdependence with a man and the most fundamental human relationship ever. That is the covenant of marriage. Marriage has been degraded, children optional, caring for the home has become archaic. We're told today that any attempt to marry and have children should be treated as a distant second to a professional career or some other self-actualizing pursuits. We're sending our daughters out to the slaughterhouses called university, where they're told that they need to embrace a new identity. And if they don't, they will find themselves on the wrong side of history. It's not hard to see then, uh, especially in the case of abortion, for example, liberating oneself is the supreme ethic. And it's replaced the ethic of love. You see? And we could apply that in just about every situation. The, the bold choice for self has replaced love. Love for God and love for others, right? This has been dubbed in the case of abortion as women, women's reproductive health or family care assuming language deceptively synonymous with human rights. The world has destroyed its natural cosmological sense that a woman's differences are good and essential to a flourishing society. And like their first mother, women have been emotionally and intellectually deceived into believing that desire provides a promising new identity instead of embracing God's loving purpose. So, Lastly, a second devastating evil, along with abortion, is the eradication of of binary gender. Feminist and queer ideology seeks to remove any vestige of gender boundaries. And this self-refuting idea has led to the undoing and demise of their own feminine ideology. You notice that? It underscores the irrationality of those that embrace dueling worldviews. What started off as social justice for women has proven to trample itself for the even more progressive agenda of monism, right? All is one. Or put another way, if a woman is a category that can no longer be defined, what is a woman, then it is impossible to defend a woman's rights. How can there be any justice for women when you can't even define what a woman is? We're told that sex and gender don't always match and that there are countless gender identities to explore and adopt as if sexual orientation were some sort of limitless option uh, like the paint color at the hardware store. Though disguised as pro-woman, today's generation is at its core the most anti-woman generation in this nation's history. Not only is a woman today carrying the burden of trying to be something she cannot be, which is a man, but she also has to carry the burden of being forced to acknowledge that anybody that wants to be a woman can. How difficult is it to live as a woman today? So, we're almost out of time. I don't like ending on negative notes. (laughs) So, come back next Sunday night because there's going to be a lot more and we're going to end it on a very positive note and we'll look at part two when we zero in on the church's role in proclaiming biblical womanhood and uh, most tantalizing to our souls is how christ our beloved redeemer restores a woman's identity so come back next week let's close in prayer i'll get you guys out of here a few minutes early father in heaven we thank you for our time you are the blessed redeemer There is much to be concerned about in this world and we lay our head down at night, often vexed over these things. And sometimes we feel helpless and have no control over the environment that's going on around us and the lies that are coming at us full speed. But we know that we serve a great God and it's not up to us, but it's up to you And you have anointed your word, you have sent it out into the world, and you have given us a new nature, new heart, new desires, new affections, and you have given us the wisdom of your word, and we have that wisdom, we have the wisdom of Christ. So we ask, Lord, that you would empower us, you would enable us, you would provoke us, you would move us to declare these things, and as has been said from the pulpit here recently, that we need to suffer We need to be willing to suffer these things. And we need to be willing to take our stand. And whatever consequences come our way, Lord, we can rejoice in heaven because we know that that suffering produces a glory that we cannot ever imagine. Thank you for your word. Thank you for women. I've been tremendously blessed to have loving, caring women by my side and in my life. And uh, thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for all the women that are here. Bless them as they go. And we pray all these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.